Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. This is our uh, this is our last week in the in the book of Exodus this week. We've been walking through this uh, this series called Into the Wilderness uh, throughout the week or throughout the last almost 5 months. Um, here and uh, we've been excited about it. It's been a great. Have you guys enjoyed that series? Has been a good series? Yeah, some of you. Cool. The five of five of you. Okay. Um, and uh, so we are. We get an opportunity, like Pastor Jeff said, to move into a brand new series called Simple. Um, and uh, th- this series, as as we have looked at what's gone on over the past year and a half, right? We, I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, like all of these crazy things. Before the pandemic. We, uh, man, we had momentum, we were moving, we knew the direction that we were going, we knew um, how we were going to onboard people, what discipleship looked like, what small groups looked like, what service looked like, all of these different things that we had worked for a long time trying to, to set those things up, and <laughs> crazily enough, we didn't plan for a pandemic, it was nuts, I don't know how we couldn't have thought about that. Um, and so uh, in the midst of that pandemic, we just kind of said, hey, let's take a second as a congregation, and we're not, we're not worried about, about leading well right now. We're worried about just, hey, we're going to hunker down. We're going to hug when we need to hug. I mean, socially distance, like give one of like those things to someone six feet away, right? Um, and uh, just do our best to kind of just get through it. And we did. Um, and uh, as we're continuing to come out on the other side of this pandemic, um, we have felt like this tension really since April, May, that sort of thing of like, where are we going now as a church? What, like, what is, what is happening? What's our discipleship process as a church? What's going to happen if you've been in our church for a long time? What's going to happen on Wednesday nights? Like, Wednesday nights was always a big deal um, around here. Um, and so what's going to happen on Wednesday nights? What does Sunday mornings look like? What's happening with junior hires during service? Because Peter, you're fine for adults, but you're boring to junior hires. Like what, like what happens um, to, to our church? What direction are we going? And so we've taken all of these different questions and concerns and then on top of that, like, how are we going to disciple people? And we've wrapped it up into a, a, a five-week series that we're just calling Simple. Um, and we believe that we don't necessarily need to, to reinvent the wheel um, to get the expectation that the Bible has for us, which is disciples making disciples. Um, and so we're going to look at that. And so it's a great series. If you've been a part of our, if you call this your church home or you've been a part of our church for a long time, you're not going to want to miss this because you're going to say, hey, yeah, I still agree with that. Or I'm out. Um, or if you're brand new, hey, that's even better because you're going to peek behind the curtain at the very, very get-go. Um, and so that starts next week. We're going to run it for five weeks. Um, and so uh, I hope you, uh, you join us for that. Uh, but beyond that, we are, we're in, in Exodus chapter 40 today. Uh, we're wrapping this thing up. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip open to that. You can click open on your app to that um, if, you, uh, if you would like to do that. And we're going to wrap this wrap this up. But as you get there, I want to share with you what I did on, um, on Friday night. Um, and so uh, Friday, we got an opportunity to celebrate my brother-in-law turning 40 years old. Um, he did it. He's made it in life, and he doesn't have to work hard the rest of his life. He's 40. That's how it works, right? Uh, but he's the first one in our, in our generation to turn 40. So, of course, we always celebrate him or celebrate the first one well. You firstborns, you always got celebrated well. And you babies are like, huh, no one celebrates me. So by the time I'm 40, because I'm so young, um, 
By the time I'm 40, I'm sure we'll just be like, here's a balloon, here's some cake, you call it a day. But we went to uh, the best team in baseball's uh, game against the Astros on Friday. Uh, It was the San Francisco Giants, in case you're curious who the best team in baseball is. And by the way, that's not up for debate um, because they legitimately have the best record in baseball, better than the Astros, definitely better than the Dodgers, regardless of how much money they throw around at the trade deadline. Um, and I just want you to know that from this stage, you're always just going to get the truth. And so if I'm saying the Giants are the best team in baseball, I'm telling the truth. The Giants are the best team. So anyway, so we went, and I decided that I was going to make this trip on my own, right? I was like, or, or one day rather. So I, I went on my own because the rest of them were like, hey, we're gonna. We're the smart ones. We're gonna get a hotel. We're gonna stay the night because they end late, um, and so I wasn't about to leave my wife with that many kids for that long a period without some sort of support. And so uh, I went up, and on the way there, it's always fun, right? Like, it's always great. When you're on your way to a destination, you're like, it's good. I got plenty of time. If I need to stop, I can stop. I can do all of those things. You know, I was caffeinated. I I stopped when I need to stop, all those things. And so, and it takes three and a half hours to get there from our front door. And so I went, and I planned it well, and it was great. And we went to the game. We did all those things. And so I was excited because baseball games, like night games, usually start at 7.15 for you non-baseball aficionados. This game started at 6.45. So I was like, sweet, it's going to get done a little bit earlier. Like my drive home isn't going to be that bad, right? And so the Giants then proceeded to play the longest game they have played all year. It was a four-hour baseball game, and the Giants lost on top of that, but still have a better record than the Dodgers. So... You're clapping because the Giants have a better record than the Dodgers. Great. I baited you into it. I got you. I don't even care. So four hours later, 10.45, I'm jumping into my truck and I'm cruising home, right? And it is, like I said, three and a half hours. Now, this drive looks drastically different than any other drive that you've taken. Like if you've taken a road trip with your kids, you know this drive is different. Because I got into my truck. I started my car. I started the truck. I, I, I got across the Bay Bridge and I'm doing the drive and I did not turn off my ignition until I was back in my driveway, right? And as quickly as I could possibly go. But like family road trips are always different than that, right? They're way different. You're kind of cruising, you have planned like educational breaks, like, oh, we're going to stop here at the world's largest thermometer, like all of those weird things that we do on those road trips. You have planned potty breaks, you have unplanned potty breaks, you have kids going to the bathroom and you slamming on the brakes, like it's all of those different things that you do on those road trips. And so if we look at scripture, like kind of like a road trip, right, we see these two different types of narratives that happen. In the book of Exodus and all these little books of the Bible that comprise the Bible, what we have is these meta narr- or these mini narratives, right? Like they're small, they're, they're isolated usually to the book of the Bible. So if you had to say, hey, what's the mini narrative that's happening in the book of Exodus? What we have there is Moses and we have the Israelites and we have Pharaoh and we have deliverance of the Israelites and obeying God and wandering, right? That's the, that's the, the micro narrative really of the book of Exodus, But then as you stack these different books on top of each other, you have Genesis and you have Exodus, you have Leviticus and on and on and on and on. As you go, you see the Bible create this macro narrative, okay, where you have, there is the same story that starts in the book of Genesis that ends in the book of Revelation, that all of these micro narratives, as they are being put together and stacked on top of each other, tell the story of God and his redemption of mankind, And so that's the macro narrative really that we're talking about. And so as you look at the book of Exodus specifically, we see one of these macro narratives. 
And it's this macro narrative of the presence of God, which is actually really, really cool. Because oftentimes we think, oh, presence of God, like it's so like elusive, like, you know, the Holy Spirit living in our lives. I'm supposed to listen to the Spirit. Like, how does that work? Like, oh, it's so mystical and so crazy. But we start hearing about the presence of God all the way back in the book of Genesis. Okay, so in the book of Genesis, we see the very, very beginning, we see God, um, we see the Holy Spirit, he's hovering over the waters. Later, we find out that Jesus is there in John chapter 1. Like, we see the presence of God there. And then uh, Eve and Adam was there too, uh, messed it up for everybody in Genesis chapter 3, right? Like, sin enters into the world. And as the sin enters into the world, we are separated from the presence of God. There's separation there. And so we find out actually nine chapters later in Genesis chapter 12 that God makes a promise to a man by the name of Abraham. Okay, there's Abraham. If you grew up in Sunday school, you did the hand motions, right arm, left arm, father, Abraham, right? You remember that one? Not going to do it. (laughs) But any more than I did. (laughs) We have Abraham, right? But then we have Isaac and Jacob as well, his sons. But God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 12 that's called the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, hey, look, I'm going to bring a redeemer. Some people would call him a savior. And he is going to come into the world through your line, as a matter of fact. And my presence is going to be made known through that savior. So that's Genesis, right? But essentially, the presence of God is gone in the book of Genesis, outside of talking to these, you know, a couple people. The followers of God do not see, do not feel, do not realize the presence of God all the way until we get to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, something really special happens. God begins to dwell with his people one more time, once more, not one more time, once more. Essentially, the presence of God, it it comes to earth. God introduces himself to the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, right? All of these these people. We talked about this as this series has kind of moved on. And and he actually uh, delivers them from captivity, from Egypt. And when he leads them out of the, the land, he leads them straight to the foot of the Red Sea. There's the parting of the Red Sea. But as he's doing that, he guides them. And it's a very specific way that he guides them. He guides them as, uh, by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right? We've seen and heard that imagery for a lot. That's Exodus chapter 13. And so the first time, for the first time since Eden... In that moment, people, the collective people, the Israelites can once more hear and see God's presence near them. This is a huge deal. Okay, but God, he's, he's kind of only a travel guide here in the book of Exodus, right? He's like, hey, follow me. And everybody just kind of marches along and they, they follow God. They follow this God's, God's presence. He hasn't really set up any home yet. And so it actually, it's why he tells Moses to make a tabernacle. The word tabernacle, you've probably heard it thrown around every once in a while. Tabernacle literally means dwelling place. Okay, so, so when you hear the word tabernacle, it's not a specific type of architecture or building or anything like that. It's just simply a dwelling place. And in the tabernacle, tent is what they build. God will be with his people And it's in this tabernacle, it's at the tabernacle, we see this pillar of cloud, the presence of God, it descends 
in there. And I'm going to get to that scripture in just a second. But what I want you to know here this morning, we're going to lean hard. We're going to go to class today, okay? We're going to go hard into the classroom for a little bit, and then we're going to pull out of the classroom. We're going to get to Jesus at the very end, okay? You guys good with that? We're going to do Jesus in spirit. So you're going to have to lean in. I'm going to throw some dates at you. You type A's in the room who like timelines and dates and dash marks and all of those things. Like, this message is for you today. Okay, so we're going to lean into the classroom. We'll get there. So in 1444 B.C., some of you type B's are like, oh, no. Okay. In 1444 B.C., somewhere between one and two years after the Israelites have left Egypt, the Israelites, they finish building the tabernacle. It's complete. It's done. The dwelling place. And Moses inspects it. Okay. And after Moses inspects it, Aaron and his sons, his sons are priests. They're part of the Levite tribe. And so as a quick aside here, if you're reading through the Old Testament and you ever see them mention the tribe of Levi from this point forward, they're the priests. Okay, they're the ones who are going to come into the religious leaders. Okay, that's the Levitical tribe. You know, book of Leviticus, right? Levite, priestly tribe. Okay, so in the tabernacle tent, though, okay, they they they're in there and they set up kind of kind of dwelling and or God sets up dwelling. And so from this point forward in the Bible, God is is dwelling in this place in the book of Exodus. Um, he they, they they place the Ten Commandments. The law and the people have sworn to obey this. We talked about uh, the, the Mosaic law last week. In the most holy place in the tabernacle, he finishes his work. And as soon as Moses finishes the work, that pillar of cloud, remember the pillar of cloud, the tour guide pillar of cloud that led them out of Egypt and spoke with Moses on Sinai, that descends in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is important. And, and, and some of you who are, are English professors may be a little upset about these two verses because they're actually redundant. It says the same thing two times here. It says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle twice. Okay? That means that this is really, really important. God's presence is in the cloud, is descending on this tent. And so glory here is another word we have to be familiar with today. Glory here means kind of a, a visible manifestation of God's presence. That's what glory is going to, going to look like here. So God is showing himself to his people because, man, he is their new neighbor He's the, the triune God. Yahweh is somehow mysteriously calling this tent that they've set up out in the wilderness, belonging to the poorest of the poor people, the Israelites, ex-slaves. He's calling this place home. He's saying, hey, look, these people that are just kind of wandering around who have no social status, I'm going to preside with them in this meeting place. And so God continues to call the, the tabernacle his home as the story continues, right? As we continue this story, God, he goes with Israel into the promised land. This is after the book of Exodus. He stays with them through 40 years of, of wandering in the wilderness and continues to do so even after they take over the promised land. And after Moses dies, Joshua, he leads the Israelites. But, shocker, after Joshua the Israelites begin to forget about who God is. They begin to forget about his presence. And so because of that, they begin to disobey 
God. This is actually the beginning of a trend that you're going to see. It's actually a trend that happened in the book of Exodus a little bit, but it's a trend that's going to continue throughout the Old Testament. See, that trend is, man, the Israelites love God. God is so cool, man. God has blessed us a ton. And then all of a sudden, after God's blessing, they begin to fail to realize that it was God's blessing in their life and they forget about God. And then all of a sudden, things are bad. And so God does something all the time in the, in the Old Testament where he brings up these foreign nations to punish the, uh, the people of Israel, the Israelites. And so then there's these foreign nations that come in and they punish the Israelites. Usually it's by killing them or enslaving them or whatever it may be. And then the Israelites are like, oh, we're so dumb. We did it again. Hey, God, can you help us out? And then God's like, yep, I'll help you out. And they're like, man, God is so cool. He's blessed us a ton. And then they forget about God again and on and on that trajectory kind of goes. Okay, But almost 500 years after that tabernacle is made, there's a new king, there's a second king, okay? The second king of Israel, it's a dude by the name of David. You guys are probably familiar with David. Okay, but before this, right before this, the Israelites are like, hey, come on, man, God, if you could just give us a king. You've given us these judges, like you've given us like these different people to, to punish us and all this stuff. If you could just give us a king, like a figurehead, someone that we could listen to, someone that we could follow. Hey, if you would just do that, man, we'd be obedient to you. So God's like, you don't need a king. You need to listen to me, but whatever, here's a king. So God gives them a couple kings. This one, David. And David, he seeks to build God. He seeks to build Yahweh, a more permanent home, right? So God doesn't live in a tent, the tabernacle that he's been hanging out in, while King David happens to live in a palace. That's not a very good look, right? And so David's like, all right, cool. I'm going to build you a, I'm gonna build you a, a temple. I'm going to build you a permanent uh, a home, a permanent place for you to be able to reside. And God is honored. And he's like, hey, you know what, David, thank you so much. But you're not going to be the one who gets to build it. Actually, your son is. This is a great kind of lesson in humility. Not only a lesson in humility, but a great lesson in a generational handoff which is incredibly important. He actually says in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, when your days are over, this is God talking to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? So David's like, all right, it's not going to be me. That's fine. It's not going to be me. You know what I'm going to do, though? I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to set up the next generation for success. Right? So he gets materials. He fundraises for him. He does everything that he needs to do. So as soon as David dies and his son takes over, they can hit the ground run, running for success. It's an incredible view of generational handoff. So David's son Solomon, he builds this new temple in 953 B.C., it takes him seven years to be able to, uh, to finish it. First Kings 6.38, it tells us that. It says, in the 11th year in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its, spec to, to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. So when he finishes it, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, like all of the, the holiest of holy things that were in the tabernacle. They take them from the tabernacle, they move them into the temple, and he sets down, sets these things down in the most holy of places. It's called the Holy of Holies, right? The holiest of holy places, the most set-apart of set-apart places. That's where he puts it, and, and when the priests leave, something really cool happens, 
and see if you maybe find it familiar. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled this temple. Reminds you of anything? Right? This literally is what happened hundreds of years before. The same exact thing happened hundreds of years before. And God's presence was so manifest that nothing else could be done in there. All of the traditions that they wanted to accomplish... All of the things that, well, we always do those things. Guess what? The, the glory of God, God's presence was so manifest that none of it mattered anymore. None of it mattered. That God was like, hey, this is my presence and this is enough. And so that's what happens there. And it's absolutely incredible, right? The temple wasn't just this empty structure for housing, you know, empty religion. It was filled with the same life-giving presence of God that walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, At last, right, the presence of God seems to have a lasting home among his people. The presence of God has arrived. That's where they're at. It's kind of like all these these houses that are going in right over here on 13th and Grangeville. Pretty cool, right? For a long time, we've been kind of a country church. You've been kind of isolated. You know, you had to drive out of town to be able to get here. Man, Hanford's just kind of climbing right over this way, and it's exciting. There's hundreds and hundreds of houses going in right over here and all the way up kind of near Fargo and over by Sierra Pacific. Man, we're going to be right in the middle of a mega development really, really soon, and that's exciting news for us. But I found out something really cool. I actually found out who the developer of all of this was, and so I was like, man, this is crazy. Hundreds of houses. Like, who's, who's doing all this stuff? I found out the de- developer, not only he's developing it, but he's also going to take a couple of those plots and make them into, like, his place. And so uh, some of you guys may have heard it's a guy by the name of, uh, of Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. I was kidding. That's a complete and total lie. <laughs> some of you guys are like, what? If we can get him to tithe here, we'll be set, right? No. Um, but, like, if that was true, if that was true, Man, how slow would you be driving by his dirt lot, right? Just hoping, like, hey, is that bald guy over there, Jeff Bezos? No, it's not Jeff Bezos. Like, like, constantly we'd be driving, like, is he there? Can we see him? Like, maybe he'll be there tomorrow. Like, are those, are those his shades that are open right there? Like, we would, we would be obsessed with who our neighbor was. We'd be obsessed with who that person was. And so as God comes to establish residence here in the temple for this the first time, can you imagine the Israelites who've been wandering the Israelites who are like, hey, hey, we finally, God, we made this place for you. And God, man, he showed up. He filled this place. They would be driving their cars so slowly by the temple trying to catch a glimpse of the glory of God. Right? They would be so excited about this kind of manifestation. And those things, like that, like that, that Jeff Bezos moving in there would, would pale in comparison to what's happening here in the tabernacle. And then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the Israelite nation of the law one more time before he dies. Right? It's the covenant we, we talked about last week. Moses says, hey, look, if you obey, if you just obey, you're going to receive blessing from God. But if you don't obey, if you don't listen to the Mosaic law, you're going to receive curses. And the worst curse of all is going to be God removing his presence from them. And so what do the Israelites do? They disobey. They forget about God's blessing. They forget about God's presence. 
And so, you know, we're rewinding back in time a little bit, but he sent judges and prophets and all these things telling them to repent. Few do so. So in the book of Ezekiel, okay, we're working our road trip down into the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, there's a, a prophet who gets a vision about God leaving. It's in 592 BC, for those of you who are keeping track on the timeline. He sees the temple. He sees the glory of God in the temple. He watches as the cloud of glory of God rises off of the Ark of the Covenant and out of the temple. It's actually Ezekiel chapter 10. It's verses 4, and then I'm going to skip to verse 19. It says, Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. This is him removing his presence. This is not his presence coming back in. Verse 19, while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings, rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is God's presence leaving. It's going. And after the the presence of the God leaves the temple, leaves the court, leaves the court, he leaves. And this is massively devastating for the Israelites. This is terrible for them. God is gone. God has abandoned them, and it leads to destruction. Four years later, on August 14th, 586 BC, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, impossible to spell, but really fun to say, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he destroys the temple, wipes it out, God's dwelling place, where God was supposed to reside. He destroys it. So God's presence and God's home are gone. They're leveled. All is lost. The Israelites actually end up going into exile without their God, without the presence of God. God is missing. The presence of God departs and it doesn't return, at least for that generation. But in 539 BC, God sends the exiles home. If you've ever read the book of Ezra or Nehemiah, that's what we're talking about here. Okay? So God, they're all in exile. They're in another country and God's like, hey, it's time for you to go home. So God sends them home from, acti- from captivity, and they begin to rebuild the temple. They finish rebuilding the temple. It's the second temple in 516 B.C., 70 years after that temple was destroyed in the first place. But notice what's missing when they finish building that temple. If you were to read Ezra chapter 6, you would see the dedication of the temple, the priests, all of the different traditions and the things that they had to do, lots of sacrifices, but something's wrong. The presence of God does not return. It doesn't come back. He stays away. Absence, not presence, was the problem. What's wrong with this picture in Ezra? The temple's rebuilt. God, here's your home. We've, we've made it for you. God, come, come back. God is absent. He doesn't come home. And there's a reason for this, right? His absence is meant to make the Israelite people long for his return. It's meant for them to, to, to cry out to God. God, where are you? God, where is your presence? Please come back. How's the old saying go? You never know what you had until it's gone. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I don't know, fill in whatever idiom you want to fill in there about missing someone or something. That's what the Israelites are supposed to experience here in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're supposed to miss what Israel had with the tabernacle. So to miss what Israel had with the first temple. The same way like little kids, right, they, they, they can't wait for Christmas, they can't wait for their birthdays or engaged couples or excited about their wedding day. We're supposed to long for the presence of God, not just in this story, but in our story, in your personal story. 
Do you want God back? Do you want him in your life too? Do you want the presence of God? So there is good news though. Four years before Ezra finished rebuilding the temple, God made a promise to him in 520 BC that he's gonna build a final temple that's greater even than the second one that they're rebuilding. So in the book of Haggai, I know, you guys are doing some deep dives. The book of Haggai, which is named after a prophet who told the people to get back to work building his second temple when they began to work on other things. They're like, oh, let's build a temple. Wait, there's something shiny over there. Let's go do that. Okay, Haggai calls the people back to rebuilding the temple. They began, like I said, they were focusing on other things. But in Haggai 2, it's verses 6 and 7, says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. We good? We good? Everybody good? We're all in class. We're taking our notes. Good. It's going to be a test at the end. So the people, though, they had to wait 500 years for this to come to fruition. They had to wait two times as long as America has been in existence in order for the glory of God to reappear on earth. 500 years of silence, 400 years of those are what we call the intertestamental period, right? That period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there is silence from God. We hear nothing from him. But then after those 500 years are up, we hear something really interesting somewhere around 6 to 4 BC, 624, not 624, between 6 and 4 BC. We don't know the exact date for sure. We don't know the year anyway, but we do know that it's December 25th because that's when we celebrate Christmas. All right, so Jesus does come onto the scene. Jesus was born. Jesus is the manifest presence of God. He is God's presence making a home with us, okay? We actually see this in the Gospel of John, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. What does tabernacle mean? Dwelling place. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the presence of God. We've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God's presence has returned to earth after 500 years. The word dwelling, if we were to take the etymology of the word and break it apart a little bit, it literally means to pitch a tent, right? Like making, making a tent. The, the, the tabernacle is back in Jesus. And in this time, it's full of God's presence. In Jesus, God has tabernacled within us. God's presence is inside of us. God has set up his tent on earth in Jesus. And it's at this point in the story that we all have to ask ourselves a question. Because this isn't the end of God's presence on earth, not by a long shot. Okay, but at this point in the story, we all have to ask ourselves a question is, do I want God to set up camp in my life? Do I want God to make me his tabernacle? And we have to be serious about that question. And some of you are like, I answered that question when I was eight years old at VBS. Good on you. Okay, but, but what does the state of your camp look like? What's the state of that tent, that tent in your life? When's the last time you went back? to that campsite. 
When's the last time you've checked on that presence of God or trying to go into the Holy of Holies to see God's presence in your life? What does that look like for you? So even if you haven't, you, even if you've said yes to God 50 years ago, that does not mean, that does not mean that your campsite's in good shape, that your tent isn't full of holes that need mending. Are you willing to have that conversation with you and have that conversation with the Spirit? Because in Jesus, God, God's, presence, it, God's presence died for our sins. God's presence is Jesus, right? So God's presence died for our sins. In Jesus, God's presence took our punishment. In Jesus, God's presence rose again to new life so that we would be able to live through faith in Jesus. I receive God's presence in my life. Through Jesus, my life is filled with God's presence. So we're talking about God's presence. Moses experiencing God's presence back in the book of Exodus, and we get to experience the same presence today. And it wasn't just through Jesus, because we all know the story. You guys have all been to an Easter service at some point in your life, most likely, right? And so Jesus died, and then he rose again on the third day. And yeah, he came back, and he hung out with his disciples a little bit, and then he ascended back into heaven. So God's presence is gone now? It's gone? No, that's the fun part, because after you get through the Gospels, you get to a book, uh, the book of Acts, literally known as the Acts, of the, the Acts of the Apostles, right? If you never knew why it was called the book of Acts, that's why it's called that. It's the Acts of the Apostles. Crazy, creative book name. But it's Acts chapter 2. It's verses 2 through 4. And what we have going on are Jesus' apostles, his followers, they're in an upper room, and they're hanging out. And then all of a sudden, something crazy starts to happen. This is what it says. It says, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if this is real or not. Not that. I know that's real. But if you think about the glory of God in the Old Testament... The glory of God being manifest since Exodus in the temple, in the tabernacle, it's filled with God's presence. They often said it was a pillar of smoke. How cool is it that in Acts chapter 2, we see now tongues of fire in the same way that the Israelites, as they were being led in the dark, as they were being led by God, was a pillar of fire. I can't verify if that's true or not, or if that's just a really, really cool coincidence, but either way, I'm in. That the Holy Spirit has come upon them. They're filled with it. The presence of God. It's an incredible event for us. It's an incredible event marking the beginning of God's presence in our life. God's glory in our life. God returning back to earth. It's an absolutely incredible event. Like Jesus is the, the big tabernacle of God, right? Like Jesus is God's presence on earth. But in the same way... That as we follow Jesus as the church, church, we too get an opportunity to become little tabernacles. Little, ta many temples. I said many, I meant many. Many, many temples. That's why it says that in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and, and 6, 19. That we are, we are God's temple. God's presence has taken up residence in us. And I love to think, like, contrast where we're at now with the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our lives. If you've said yes to Jesus, we say that you've been sealed by the Spirit. Okay? If that was a, a true God-honoring, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to follow Jesus' decision that you made, then you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for eternity. 
The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But I would love to have a conversation with Moses and be like, hey, Moses, if you had the option between like that, that, that pillar that was smoke and that pillar that was fire and that presence of God or having the presence of God literally manifest itself inside of you, which one would you choose? I bet you his mind would have been blown. Like the presence of God could live inside of me? Like not just like in that temple over there and I have to follow all of those rules that the Old Testament tells me to follow? No, I, 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 he, he's going to take up residence in, inside of me? But here's the funny thing is that each and every one of us, if, if, if we're reading this story in the book of Exodus and you know you've been a, if you've been a Christian for a long time or whatever, you're like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in me, presence of God, all that stuff. And I said, okay, you have a choice. You can either see a pillar of fire outside that God, he's literally going to direct you where to go all day. Or you can have the presence of God live inside of you. Which one would you choose? I bet we'd be split. I bet people would be like, hey, pillar of fire sounds pretty sweet. And it might be cool for a day. I mean, I'm sure it was cool. And it might be cool for a day. It may be helpful. It'll be helpful for as long as God wants it to be helpful. But the reality is we have the presence of God living inside of us. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing greater than that. The Israelites were longing for this. The whole Old Testament is over and over and over again. People waiting for the presence of God to be manifest on earth somewhere. And now, man, God sent it a step further. It's not just manifest on earth. It's manifest in our lives. It's manifest in our hearts, like it's inside of us. He lives inside of us. And so while all of this is fun to kind of like track through scripture and you got your timelines going and, you know, add artwork to it later for a grade that we'll give you or whatever it may look like, like all of that is fun and good and head knowledge is good and fun and important. But if this doesn't get legs, it doesn't matter. If this doesn't get legs in your life, if you walked out today and you're like, man, Pastor Peter talked about a lot of dates today. It's about time he did something like Like if that's your takeaway from today, you did it wrong. This has to have legs in your life. The presence of God has to have legs in your life. You have to leave here recognizing that we have something better than anything, like anyone else on the face of this earth as people who have said yes to Jesus. And it's the presence of God in your life. Do we act like the presence of God is alive and well in our lives? Do we act like the Holy Spirit is alive and well in your lives? Like the tabernacle, there was, there was no room for anything else. There was no room for tradition. There was no room for anything else. It was just, hey, it's the presence of God when, when he filled it up. Is that your life? That the presence of God is all there's room for? That I'm going to be so filled up with the presence of God that it doesn't, like, all I want to do is just honor God with my life and the decisions that I have to make in my work life and my family and, and whatever it is that you do. That's all I have room for is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. He has taken over our lives in the best possible way. And I know you type A's out there. You're like, I don't know if I'm okay with that. I like control of my life. But I guarantee you the presence of God is way better than your white knuckles. That's the reality of it. Our thoughts should no longer be regarding selfish ambition or greed or sin. Right? They should be focused on God and his work in, in the world and his work in our lives. The Holy Spirit's taking up residence as Jesus is no longer on earth 
And so I know a big question that people always have at church is like, man, I just can't hear God. God, I, God, can you speak to me? God, can you say something to me? And I guess my question then is, is have you been quiet enough to listen? Have you stopped long enough to re- reflect on the fact that, hey, the presence of God is alive and in my life? He lives inside of me. And so my guess is that God isn't silent as much as you aren't listening, as much as we aren't listening to him. It's our responsibility to be still enough to hear the voice of the Spirit who wants to work in us. Are you being still enough to hear him? And so like I said, from, from all the way back to Genesis, as we've walked through the book of Exodus, man, the presence of God is alive and well. That's not the issue. The issue is our obedience and being quiet enough to listen. And so today we're going to give you two opportunities, two opportunities to respond to the Holy Spirit being present in your life. Okay, the second one is going to be tonight. Second one, we have our our worship night. And there are no strings attached tonight. If you came this morning, you're like, man, everything was great except that pastor who talked too fast and threw out way too many dates. I get it. You don't have to listen to me at all tonight. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to say a word from stage tonight. So you can come and you don't have to worry about me. We're going to have songs going on. There's going to be prayer. We're going to read some scripture. Um, And that is a great opportunity for you to be just silent and still. And listen to the Holy Spirit working. You can respond. You can sing if you want to sing. You can kneel if you want to kneel. Whatever it is. I know that's hard for Baptists sometimes. But you, you are here in the presence of God is our hope. So that's your first opportunity to respond. Or your second opportunity to respond, rather. Your first opportunity is today, right now. Is that at the beginning of every single month, we partake in communion. And Kyle and the band, you guys can appear out of nowhere. But this morning, as we respond in communion, we'll receive communion together. If you didn't get communion on your way in, just throw your hand up. Um, We'll have some uh, ushers come and, and give you some. But today... Kyle's going to, and the worship team, they're going to do a song in just a second. I'm going to pray the ABCs in just a second. Our ABCs, we, we do this at the end of every service, that if you have not yet said yes to God, you don't have the Holy Spirit living in your heart. The presence of God is not currently inside of you. And so if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time and have that presence of God living inside of you so you have the opportunity to honor him and glorify him and be with him forever, then I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that in just a second. But for everybody else in the room, I want you to take this opportunity to to be quiet and just listen to the presence of God in your life. And that could look different for each of you. Maybe that means physically you're quiet and you're just gonna listen to the words and you're gonna listen to the spirit moving inside of you. Maybe for others of you, that means, hey, in my spirit, in my heart, and I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna raise my hands and I'm gonna worship God with all that I am because I can feel the spirit moving in my life. I don't know where it is that you need to feel the presence of the Spirit, that you need to recognize the presence of the Spirit in your life, but he's there if you've said yes to Jesus. And I would encourage you at this moment to be silent enough to hear him. And so I'm going to pray, we're going to sing a song together, and then we'll receive communion all at once. So why don't you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we... God, I thank you, first of all, for your word. I thank you for the book of Exodus. And God, just looking at how your spirit has moved through 
And even as we take that road trip through the Old Testament into Acts, even into Corinthians, God, how eventually your presence will be set up in your kingdom forever. God, I thank you for that, but God, I thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live inside of each and every person who would call you their Savior. And so if that's you today, and you've not yet said yes to God, if that's you, and here's your opportunity to respond. You just pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I know that my sinful nature gets in the way of your presence in my life. That it's harder for me to feel you and see you and listen to you when I sin. And so I'm sorry for that, God. I admit that I'm a sinner. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. That he conquered death. That your presence on earth died on a cross for us. And because of that, I get to then be in your presence forever. But until that day, God, I choose to follow you. I choose to follow the promptings of your spirit. I choose to follow the the presence of the spirit in my life. Thank you for sending him. And maybe for those this morning who have said yes a long time ago, maybe it's been 50, 60, 70 years since you've said yes to God and man, you just, you want to be a representation. You want to be a temple of God. You want his presence to be made known to other people and you've just fallen short lately and you've gotten busy or you've let sin creep back in. If that's you today, then man, just surrender. Just cry out to God. Just say, God, I am sorry. Cry out to his presence in your life. Apologize to the Spirit if you've grieved Him. Just just do whatever it is that you need to do to get right with God. Say sorry and say, hey, I'm going to choose to follow you every single day. Like, that is my goal, God. And I'm going to fall short, but I want to represent you well in the world and in my life. So, Father, we love you. And I pray in this moment that we would have an opportunity to be silent and listen to your Spirit. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.